Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners. I'm your host, Maureen Warbach. This episode is sponsored by All Call Technologies. All Call Technologies is a HIPAA-compliant virtual receptionist that allows for customized voicemail boxes that can ring to your clinician's cell phones. I use it, and seriously, I love it. Clinicians can call back from their cell phones and have the office number show up, which is an awesome feature. Go to www.allcalltechnologies.com backslash group MHP and put in the code TGPE, that's TGPE, for $50 off your setup. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. This is Maureen, and I'm really excited because today I have Christopher Smith, who owns a group practice in New York and has a really fun, I think, unique way of having its group practice as a teaching practice. And so I have him on today so that we can talk about that. Hi, Christopher. How are you? Hello, doing good. Awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to have you kind of explain how your group practice runs and what that looks like because it is not the average, typical, hire clinicians, have them stay forever, and uh, you know that style of group practice. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you today a little bit about how you set this up and, and what this looks like. Yeah, so a large part of our practice really is the, the, the aspect of training the clinicians who are coming on board. So it's working with interns and then what I call residents, which are people who already have their master's degree and are working towards their full licensure. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's a term in New York that works well because everyone in the community also understands what a resident is when, because of seeing residents at the hospital all the time. So it's really a way of being able to expand in the things that I feel are really important and being able to get that part of the training into these new people. So you're actually influencing the next generation of clinicians who are coming out that way. I really like that idea, and I think it goes against what a lot of people uh, assume when they start their group practice, which is you want to keep them forever and find a way to hire people who will never leave, and this kind of does the opposite. You, What you want to be able to do, what I think you want to be able to do is to train people to be um, these great therapists, but you want them then to move on and, and thrive wherever it is that they go. I'm also open at the same time that some of them may stay on, and I have had some stay on past the point of getting their licensure, but not necessarily lifelong staying on. Um, but some people, for some people, having their own practice is not the goal. Right. Because they don't want to do all the stuff that having a practice and owning a practice, whether it's a group practice or a solo practice, that you don't want to do all that stuff. Um, so for some people, then staying on, particularly because the other side effect that I get out of doing a group teaching practice is that interns, there's not a cost for in terms of personnel cost. And people are still in training, so they're understanding that they're still at a training level, so that the salaries aren't necessarily the same as what you would pay, be paying a veteran clinician who's coming on. So it also means that I'm able to, to be able to serve in the Bronx, a community that is very underserved, in ways that would not otherwise be able to be served. So let, tell me a little bit about what your business structure looks like, because I think you have a couple of different businesses, right? And they somehow all yeah. work <laughs> with each other in some ways. And that's a New York thing more than, well, there's other parts that do fit together. Otherwise, that look like a lot of us, we do other things that fit in. So I, I do some publishing side that also does some things that fit in that way. But with the practice in New York, your, your entities are restricted to one particular license area. So because I'm a marriage and family therapist and a mental health counselor, I have to have two corporations. 
that then have to work in partnership with each other to then provide the services to the community. Okay, that makes a lot uh, of sense. It's a, it's a weird type of structure that way. Then I also do a little bit of work still back in Indiana. So I have another corporation back in Indiana just because state lines cause all sorts of problems. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that. Indiana, yeah. interesting. How do you, is that online stuff? Um, it's more that I go back and like do a weekend workshop. Oh, fun! And do things in a more condensed fashion to be able to just intensely be able to work on a particular area of problem with people. Awesome! It's also where I have family, so it's good to be able to go back and see family at the same time. So. Oh, well, you're getting two things done at once then. <laughs> okay, so with your um, practice in in New York, you how many locations do you have? I have three locations, and then I also do telemental health for my home office. Okay, awesome. Um, between your three locations, are there different um, are there different expectations or is it that everything is sort of streamlined in terms of what you do and what you offer and what you expect from the clinicians that you have? Or are there, I know you mentioned the Bronx, so I'm assuming there, that that's where you obviously have your interns and stuff. Right. Is it, does it vary by location, what you're doing, or is it teaching across all? There's some variation in the sense that my Midtown location, I don't have any of the teaching staff have working there at all. So it's just myself. Okay. But what I found is that by having a practice in Midtown, A, it helps me keep my own income side up, but it also helps to give credibility in the Bronx where people are very hesitant about mental health services that this service can't be too bad if they also have a place in Midtown. That's really, so really It smart. actually helps from an overall marketing standpoint and trying to reach across some of the stigma barriers. And then we have uh, two, two offices that are in the Bronx um, that operate very similar to each other in terms of the teaching clinicians doing most of the work in those offices. The differences between the two is there is some differences in the cultural communities that are around them. So that does bring some different influences. So in one, one of the offices, I look to make sure I always have someone who can do some Spanish work because yeah. there's enough of a Hispanic population around it. The other population has more of a Jamaican population around it. So they don't need the, the, the bilingual aspect there. That's interesting. I was just going to ask, are there any considerations that you have to think about that may, being a t- teaching facility and having interns that um, maybe those that have don't have interns don't have to think about, or just because we have a lot of clinicians that are looking to hire provisionally licensed or interns and they don't know what they don't know. It are, what are some of those considerations that are unique to your business that you need to think about when bringing on someone who's provisionally licensed or an intern? So one of the things is that as a supervisor, you see them across the whole spectrum in turn, as far as what their capabilities are as well as where they're at professionally. So when I first start working with someone who's a brand new intern when they're in practicum, you know, I basically have to assume that they don't have anything. And I mean, you're back down to here's what you need to write into a note. You know, here's what you don't write into a note, um, yeah. which is something that you don't do if you have a license, bring a license clinician on. They better know that before you bring them on if they're already licensed. Um, and then it's a matter of making sure that you're gradually introducing the other stuff that they need to be learning that are what you learn when you're on the ground. You know, at what point do they need to know how to call ACS if it's going to be a mandated report case around a child? You know, that may not be a day one issue, but that's something you're teaching them because they don't really learn that when they're in school. Exactly. So I know one of the things that's really important to consider is when you have interns or provisionally licensed therapists is your own time as the person who's supervising. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I feel like that's something that people don't think about when they, um, when they think about hiring someone who's provisionally licensed and they become overwhelmed later because they realize that it's a lot more work than they expected. And so you being in the position of purposefully doing this, um, obviously you have a lot more experience in that area. 
So on paper, you're spending one hour a week doing supervision with someone. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people think. Aha, great. I've got all this free labor. It's going to cost me an hour. Right. But the reality is, is it costs you that hour and there's probably going to be many other phone calls or other communications with that person in between times. There are some of those things you push off to the next supervision. But there's also things that they call up and say, this just happened in session. Do I need to do something? Well, you got to take that call and be able to be able to answer that. So those already add up. In New York, as a supervisor, we also are required to read and sign off on every single note and form that, the, that those people are also filling out. That takes a significant amount of time. Um, so finding a way to structure that into your life. Now, some of those things, the good thing is, is you can choose when you want to do it. Right. So if, I, if I'm up late because I can't fall asleep and it's two o'clock in the morning, I can sit there and I can go through and I can read 10 notes and I can sign off on the notes because I use an EHR, so I don't have to go to their office to do that. We can do it right inside the EHR, and that makes a huge advantage to be able to do that. Yes. It is a significant investment of time, it's, but it's something that I feel is very important as part of who I am, and part of, part of it is I, I incorporate spirituality into the therapeutic practice, and I want to make sure people are learning how to do that, and I feel strongly about that. So it's a matter of getting that out there, which is an important piece. Um, and so when I first started working out how to do this, I realized you can't pay people the same amount if they're in the training part because there's, they're doing part of the work and the supervisor's doing part of the work. Exactly. Whether it's me or I was hiring someone else on. So what I do basically is I take whatever the rate I would normally give for a regular clinician, and then I reduce that by 10%. And that 10% goes to pay for supervisor time. Okay, that makes sense. I was going to say, I... Um Every year I bring on one intern. I, I don't hire provisionally licensed people, um, but I bring on an intern that is obviously in our state would be unpaid. Um, and then we allow, for me, it's a, a wash. I, I don't look at it as a, a source of income. Mm -hmm. I have a clinical director who does the supervision. So she is the one that then supervises that person and yeah. she gets paid uh, yeah a lot to, to provide supervision because she's also the clinical director. And so for me, um, the rates start at around $50 ish, but it, I'm open to, as long as the client will pay something just to be invested, even if it's five or $10, it's really a service to the community to be able to, um, offer counseling to anyone that needs it, even if they can't afford our fully licensed clinicians, full rates, or they don't have insurance, um, or the insurance that we accept then. Um, and so for me, it's, I, I do it a lot very differently from you because um, it essentially is a, is a wash if they have, you know, 10 or 15 people at $20 an hour that essentially goes to paying my supervisor, my clinical director to provide all that supervision. Um, this is different from you because obviously you're bringing in income with this. So how does that look different that from how I, how I do it, which is $20, $15 per session. It's a something for the community and most of it ends up going to the supervisor. So I, I see some similarities, actually, to what you're describing. Okay. Um, in the way I look at the interns, so I'm talking about the interns and not talking about the residents right now. So the residents yeah. actually can bring in more income, and there's actually a, a factor there. They're also getting income, too. Exactly. But for the interns, you're right, they're unpaid. But unfortunately, in New York, we have some higher expenses, too, just in terms of real estate, just being able to have a room for them to sit in. Um, so I basically am at close to a break-even point, and the amount I'm getting paid for the supervising of the interns does not adequately compensate my time. If I had someone else who was doing the supervision of interns, I would probably have to look at the model and say, now what am I going to do differently? Yeah. yeah. But I also view it that I'm getting more work out into the community by using the interns, by using my supervision time, 
rather than by doing the, the work directly that I might otherwise want to do to be able to make an impact in the community. So are you saying then for interns, not thinking um, about the residents or in or what we call in my state, the provisionally licensed therapist, um, is it more, should group practice owners who want to bring on interns think of it more as not an income source? Because I feel like a lot of people assume that because they don't have to pay them, they're going to be generating all of this income. Uh, and for me, I've always found that it, it doesn't do that. And so I don't have that expectation. And I have a room set aside that I know is a, a non-income room in, in a sense. Um, what do you say to those clinicians who may, when it comes to just finances and expectations financially with I, interns? I think you have to structure, note, structure it and be realistic about what you're structuring. So if I was using interns in Midtown, I probably could structure it where interns would see people and charge $100 a session and I could be making money off of using interns there. Interesting. But I'm using interns in the Bronx and I have a program called Journey to Peace that I use there where we're charging $30 a session. That's our version of what the equivalent of a copay would be. Right. And so for $30 a session, people who are uninsured or whose insurance is not adequate in the Bronx, we're able to serve them with sessions through the interns. I could never afford to do many, very many of those $30 sessions myself. Right. By having interns, I'm able to have a whole program where that's being offered and a whole bunch of people are getting services that would not otherwise get it. And at the same time, I'm also getting the education towards these interns at the same time. So there's multiple positive effects that are coming from that. Net-wise, am I really making money off of it? No, I'm probably losing a little bit of money from my time. Yes, but we all get something from our time somehow. And this is the way I'm giving up my time to be in yes. community. And that's, that's how I view it too. And so I think um, just hearing it from a, the perspective of a person who's really doing it much better than I am, obviously. Um, it's, I think it's a good piece of information for people to know so that they don't set themselves up in, in a place where they become resentful because they have these uh, assumptions, at least on the financial end and on the time end. Um, I, like you said, initially, I think most people think, you know, one hour of supervision is what re- what's required. And that's essentially what my, you know, my end of the bargain is going to be is one hour every week. And for, as you said, it's the same, same in our situation. You have to be available anytime that they're seeing clients, even if you are not there to see clients because they, there may be a crisis and you're obligated to answer that phone and help them through that. And so there's, a, and just like the things you mentioned, checking notes, we have to do that as well is sign off on every note. And that in and of itself, depending on how many clients are seeing, can potentially take more than an hour in that week too. And so um, there's just a lot of things to consider. But for me, I feel like the ability to help the community in a way that we wouldn't be able to with our fully licensed therapists who expect to make a certain amount of money, um, it's, it's a really nice thing to be able to offer. I would say, though, it's not just crises you have to really be available for them also. It's if they run across a situation that they've not been familiar with, they may just have questions about how they should be proceeding or did they, you know, did they really, did I really make a huge mistake in what I just did? True, and true. They don't want to hold on to that question for six days because they start beating up on themselves so much in those six days and it affects how they're seeing other clients too. That's so true. crisis is probably a much stronger term than what you actually end up getting caught up in. Yeah, that is very true, actually. Do you find that there's any obstacles on your end with um, any part of the process of having interns or residents on, in terms of just the onboarding process or hiring process or with them being there? So there's two, there's different difficulties when you're bringing people on board. 
with interns, the difficulty I find is that we're reliant upon whatever that school's requirements are and fitting in with their requirements. And every school has different requirements. And sometimes the schools are not very good at voicing what those requirements are until you haven't been meeting what they think the requirement was. (laughs) And so that's the challenge of working with interns. And once you get used to a school, you're like, you know, what is this going on? I mean, I had someone call me up just yesterday asking for an internship. turns out they're they're too far away. They're not going to come. But they started describing what their internship requirements was. I said, well, what about such and such? Is that part of that part or not? And, you know, I know these things can change from time to time. They're like, oh, no, that really is still part of it. I'm like, okay, so I know, I know your school well enough. I know exactly what you're really supposed to be doing, and it hasn't changed. It's fine. That's funny. That's why I have one. We have one school that um, we have a connection with where we get our intern because we only take one per year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that places requirements. Um, and you're right. Every school is so different. We, we had once when we first started an intern from a completely different school that had so many expectations and, uh, I mean, odd, so many things um, that took up so much of our time from site visits, multiple, multiple site visits. Sometimes, you know, the, the school that we, the grad school we work with now um, just does two, I think, in the in the every two every six months site visits. Mm-hmm. And then they're expectations are kind of the, the typical for us in our area for Chicago, typical grad school expectations, but there's some that have a ton of extra things that they expect from the supervisors, which obviously um, is something to consider when it comes to your time. Well, I had one that was not going to let them do anything on their own. They could only just be doing observations. Oh, really? For the entire internship. I'm like, that really doesn't do much for me. I mean, yes, I'll be influential on this person, but just simply to have someone hanging out with me in sessions and not allowed to speak and not allowed, I mean, only allowed to watch. Yeah. To huh. me, seemed like that was not what I was really looking for. So you have to know what the requirement is for the school. Yeah, and that's... That's important on that side. On the resident side, they are employees. And so you have all of the employee part as far as onboarding and having to make sure that you have everything in place that you would have to have for any other employee. And here in New York, there's a lot of debate about employee versus IC anyway. Um, but... For someone who's a resident, there is absolutely no choice. They have to be an employee because they can't be an independent practice on their own. Right. So because of that, they, they can't have their own business, which was what an IC would be. So therefore, definitely for residents, there's no question they have to be an employee and you've got to make sure all of those things are in place and that you stay on top of all of those things. Do you find that it's difficult to, or more difficult to um, fill a caseload of a resident versus your regular clinicians? that are fully licensed or um, I know at least in, in my area, it tends to be, which is why I don't hire provisionally licensed people is that one, we're in a, in a state, our state, our insurance reimbursement rates are pretty decent for the most part. And so most people will not pay out of pocket. Most will not pay out of pocket for therapy services. And so they'll use their insurance, which then there's all these stipulations of using provisionally licensed people with insurance anyways. Um, but people then, because they only have $30 copays for the most part, unless they have deductibles, um, they just prefer to see someone who's fully licensed. I know New York is a little different in that sense because a lot, a lot of people can, or are willing to pay out of pocket, right? Do you well, think that, people ahead, are, it depends on where you are. Okay. So in Midtown, I get a lot of people who are willing to pay out of pocket. Okay. Um, and that's where your yeah. residents are, right? No, my residents are also up in the Bronx. They that's are, okay. the problem is that but in Midtown, there are a lot of people who pay out of pocket. I mean, the people who are, you know, the executives in Fortune 500 companies, they right. 
they have enough money, they don't really worry about paying out of pocket for, for things. You know, I had people who've argued to pay more than what I was asking them to pay. You know, it was just a problem. Well, Fun problem. Have in business, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so do you find that it's an issue then? Because it, uh, it sounds like, so, um, yeah, you know. It is an issue for me, the same sort of way as what you're describing in Chicago, because my, my clinicians cannot take insurance. There have been a couple of EAPs that have been willing to take them on as being part of the panels. Do it's, you find that the clients that are prefer to then use a fully licensed therapist or is that typically not a problem? The issue is, is the Bronx is so underserved. There's so little service in the Bronx that people have to leave the Bronx to go somewhere else to get service a lot of times. So that is partially why we're able to get some people to go ahead and see them anyway. Perfect. Um, and our fees are also lower in the Bronx than they would be in Midtown because we're also sensitive to the community. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very poor community. as a, yeah. And so we're trying to be sensitive to that. So because we try to keep it in a reasonable range that way, I think that's partially what helps to be able to fill some of those. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's something that almost the the answer to this to this question would be it would vary based off of where the practice is at because I feel like in in our area it is really hard. I had one provisionally licensed person when I first started my group practice about six years ago, um, and it was always a lot harder because most people took their you wanted to use their insurance mm-hmm. and didn't want to pay out of pocket more than their copay was, but obviously my provisionally licensed person wouldn't want to take 50%, let's say of a $30 copay, you know, that wasn't worth it for them. And so, um, that's kind of the decision for me in not having provisionally licensed people just based off of being in Chicago and, uh, opting to have an intern each year so that those that couldn't afford our, our full fee and also don't have insurance would still have the option at, any amount for me, for my practice, I'm, I'm okay with any amount. I don't want it to be a barrier at all. Um, but the resident, um, idea is interesting because I, for me in this area it would be really difficult to do. I suppose the other factor that factors into New York a little bit is where I said at the very beginning that they really know that they're still in an educational phase. So they're not looking to be earning the same amount that a regular clinician would. Yes. And that I think is even more so here in New York where, we have so many schools that are churning out potential therapists and counselors, and there are not enough places that are willing to take them on to get the hours they need to get their license. That makes so sense. I had someone who approached me who's, who's actually been looking for eight years looking for a placement. Really? You know. Wow. You know, he's got his own quirks around him, and so there's some reasons maybe why it's taken him eight years. But there are many people who find, if I go to the professional meetings, the students, they're always saying, where was taking, where, where else can we apply? Where can I go get hours? Because there really aren't a sufficient amount of places to get hours. So that also, I think, allows some of them to take on a different attitude about what they're going to earn while they're in the time, while they're getting their hours. And so that may also adjust where they're willing to sometimes flex as far as fees go as well. That makes a lot of sense. So in, in kind of your own business, but also just thinking more globally uh, at being a teaching group practice, what kind of impact do you feel like you guys can have in having this sort of setup that a uh, typical or what I have a regular fully licensed group practice has? What, what, is, what do you have that in terms of vision, in terms of your bigger goals, and in terms of just the impact that you can make that someone like me might not be able to being a teaching facility. 
So I sort of slipped into it. You know, that was not my goal to start a teaching program. Okay. Interesting. Good to know. I was going to ask that, actually. Is it, was this part of this grand plan that you had? <laughs> and a lot of the times through my career, I've sort of been moving to where I, where do I feel my calling is at at the time. And so I brought on an intern, and working with that intern, we worked out the idea of the Journey to Peace program. And then it sort of spread from there on into a larger part of the terms of being a teaching practice. What's Journey to Peace? A Journey to Peace is that program where I do $30 for people in the Bronx to okay. try to teach those who are uninsured and stuff. Because the basic idea in the Bronx is people say you don't go to get therapy. Um, is that a nonprofit or is that part of your... That's part of my thing. So that's where I use the interns is to be able to do that part. Okay, perfect. Um, I thought about doing a separate nonprofit that would help supplement those rates that would then mean I could use other staff also to be doing that. But I haven't got that far. That's a longer distance possibility. Okay, uh, so you kind of fell into this. So I sort of fell into it. And, but what I really see is it, it utilizes gifts that I have. I mean, I was in education beforehand, so I have the, the teaching part as a natural part for me. Uh, even the pastoral part of my background also sort of has a teaching element to it. So it fits nicely into who I am that way. But then the benefits that come out are that you're able to do things that you can't otherwise do. I could never do the program like Journey to Peace in the Bronx just on my own. Um, so it allows me to be able to have an impact in a community that I feel really needs to have good service that is not getting good service. Am I going to make a total difference for the Bronx? Obviously not. You know, one person's not going to be able to make that, but can I make a dent in that? I think that we're actually making a dent. And I've seen a dent in one community and in the second community we're moving into, we're beginning to see a little bit of a dent there too. So where's, that, your, where's your second community? We actually have two offices in the Bronx. Oh, awesome. And they're in two very different locations. And so can begin to see that there's some things. We had, we had a panel discussion in the second community where people actually started talking about the fact of, yeah, actually, I, I felt suicidal in the past. And for that to be spoken out loud in the Bronx was a huge major step forward. Now, are we the only part of that? No, there are other people who are also having influence in that, but are we part of helping that change to happen? Yes, we're making a change in that community and then in people's lives. I think the that's other, amazing. The other part for me that difference-wise is this whole aspect of Sometimes in our field, we do put down spirituality and religion as not being a part that comes into the therapeutic room. And I think it has such, so much value that can be there, even if you don't work primarily with that, to at least have an awareness around that, that to be able to get more clinicians who are actually willing to listen to the spiritual or religious side of a person when they come in the room, and not just their medical and psychological and social and all the other dimensions of them, is also a real big payoff for me because that's an area that I feel strongly about also, and that's part of my passion. So is that where is that part of the training that you give then in the teaching aspect is is in the spirituality sense yeah, of how I, ex I expect all, I mean a part of our intake form asks questions about spirituality, part of our assessment form asks about different dimensions of person's spirituality. So I expect my clinicians as they go through there to gain at least a certain level of ability to be able to work around those topics. Now there's going to be times you're going to get into something and you're not going to be able to handle it. You need to pass it on to someone else who has more expertise in that particular area of it. That's fine. But I at least want them to be able to, when they leave me, to still be able to include that as an awareness about something that's coming into the room and how could this be factoring into what's going on. And also, how can this be used as a way to be able to help as you go forward also? So if if you had, I don't know, I'm putting you on the spot right now, um, one thing, and I obviously, if you have more than one, that's fine, but one thing that you would give as either a piece of advice or a first step for someone who is thinking about implementing teaching in their group practice, what would that be? 
I think I would be thinking about making sure your structures are such that it's going to work for you and so that you're being realistic about it. That probably would be, if I had to say one thing, that's going to be the first thing. I mean, after that, you have to start thinking about what am I really trying to teach and how, how am I working as a teacher? So I use both individual supervision, the in-between contacts, but we also gather together once a month for a three-hour teaching block with everybody. Oh, so, nice. you know, that's a way I do part of the teaching. So I don't have to keep doing it with everyone individually also. Um, but it's also sometimes in that group setting, we can get some things to happen that I can't get to happen if I'm just working with them individually. Um, so thinking about, you know, the teaching style comes after that. But the first part really is making sure it's going to be a model that you're going to be able to sustain at least long enough for whoever you're bringing on. It'd be really bad to bring someone on and then halfway through say, sorry, this isn't working for me. You know, you need to go find somewhere else to go. That's, yeah. And that's I've heard that really happen. bad for you. And it's really bad for the person you brought on. Yeah. And it, that's not too uncommon. I, I think a lot of group practice owners do exactly what you say not to do, which is bring someone on before fully putting together um, a plan on how it's supposed to look, um, especially when there's expectations around how many direct hours this person needs and if you have the ability to fill that within the time frame that they have. Because um, for the mo- for interns, at least, there it isn't indefinite. They can't usually be, you know, seeing their 700 hours or whatever it is in a three-year time span. They need to have it within their eight, eight to 12 month time span. So you have to also be thinking about that too, is can you give them what they need? And in many states, even the pre-license, they only have so long to get their hours. If they don't get their hours in that time, the career is over for them. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So many things to think about. Um, so thank you so much for, for talking yeah. about your practice and what it looks like to be a teaching facility and giving some insights and feedback to people that are listening um, when it comes to if they're thinking about starting to offer teaching in their group practices, what that would look like, things to consider, obstacles they may have. Um, this is, has been really good. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about that. No problem. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Okay.